Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. I did forget to make one announcement, uh, and that is that uh, this evening, uh, Jason Wagner, who's uh, being called as the new pastor at Christ the Redeemer in Lee Summit, Missouri, is going to be installed as the pastor. And so uh, please pray for him, if you would, as he... Uh, begins this new call and uh, that God might use him and uh, the church there to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, let's look at Nehemiah. Actually, let's begin with verse 38. Because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our priests and our Levites and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor. And then I'm not going to read all those other names, but if you'll skip down to verse 28, we read the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a cursed and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops and the, of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make a, an atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our Father's houses, uh, at time appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. As it is written in the law, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of the herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine, the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithe in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of Excuse me. So bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are. 
as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we acknowledge that we are weak people. God, our minds wander. We, our attention is sometimes short. God, our hearts are, are given to sin rather than obedience. Lord, there's just so many things that are, that are going on, but we thank you, oh God, that you are mighty and you are great and you, are, you have given us the gift of your word this morning. So Lord, help us, we pray. Strengthen us in our weakness to heed your word, Lord, not just to understand it, not uh, just to keep it, but to do it as we leave this place. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak the truth of your word to us today. Work in our hearts, O oh God, uh, to your glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, today we're looking at Nehemiah uh, chapter 10 and the topic of keeping vows. And especially uh, that's important in the world in which we live because the world in which we live, people are very prone to break their vows. And that leads oftentimes to broken lives and, and, and many difficulties. But we thank God that we serve a God who is faithful, right? And He keeps His Word. He keeps His promises. And He is the giver of life. And so this morning we're going to look at this idea of covenant. Now, let me just uh, say here that while you know the title of the sermon is Covenant, each point that I'm going to cover uh, in this sermon is speaking of the covenant, the word that typically is used for covenant is not even in this text, okay? Unless you think I'm making this up or anything, but in chapter 9, verse 38, where it talks about how they, they made a firm covenant, uh, actually the word is, is, a very, is a different word than it's typically used for covenant. It means a firm promise. Okay, so where do we get this idea of covenant then? Well, you know, um, a covenant is a binding agreement between two or more persons. You know, we might think of a contract or might think of a, a marriage covenant that is made with others. And so you say, yeah, but Pastor Rick, where do we get that here? Well, the word to make, where it says that they made a covenant, that word to make means to cut. And if you, if you know the Hebrew word for covenant means to cut a covenant. And this word to make that's used here has strong association with covenant making. And so this isn't something I'm just making up. It's, it's in the text, even though the actual word isn't. The idea strongly is. And so we want to look at this covenant this morning, this binding agreement between two or more persons. And what I'm going to do is talk about the covenanters, okay? The people who are making the covenant, the, the context, if you would, of this covenant that's being made. I'm also going to look at the covenanting, the commitment that they make. And then thirdly, the actual covenant itself, the content of what it is. And then we'll uh, take some time to look at some closing ideas and how it applies to us this morning. So first of all, the covenanters, okay, or the context of the covenant. Uh, if you remember uh, from last week, uh, the people confessed their sins to God as they heard the word of God read, which led them at the end of chapter 9, verse 38, to this covenant renewal to uh, 
to this idea of making a covenant with the Lord. Now, this covenant was not something that was entered into, you know, only at the general group level. Uh, those who signed the covenant made a very personal, public, and permanent commitment to abide by this. And, and we see the signatures of those who signed it. And those are found in verses 1 through 27. And at the head of the list is who? Who is it, kids? It's Nehemiah. Now, that probably doesn't surprise you. He is that kind of leader. He's like, let me step up and, and let me sign. But then beyond Nehemiah, we see the priest in verses 1 through 8. We see the Levites in verses 9 through 13. And then a classification of verses 14 through 27, which is known as the chiefs of the people or the heads of the clans of the people. Now, you can just imagine it would be like impossible to get like, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of signatures on a document. So it only makes sense that there would be those who represent the, the people. And so they do. They come as a representative of the people to make this covenant. And so they're saying, in essence, Israel is saying, in essence, that all of Israel is here. And Israel is all in. We agree with the covenant. We are making this covenant with you, God. And, and notice that Nehemiah uses the word seal to describe this public commitment that's being made uh, in verses, uh, uh, the end of chapter 9 and the first verse of chapter 10. And the implication is, is that this is an official document, maybe like a marriage license. That's about the best example I could think of in our day and time, but it's a commitment. And the language of making this oath or this promise or this covenant is literally, like I said earlier, a cutting to make this, this, this promise. And also, if you look down at verse 29, you'll see the idea of curses and oaths, which is also covenant language as well. But in this case, the people make a covenant or a promise to God, and it's worth noting that God did not ask them to do this. But this is something that they took upon themselves, which is not all bad. You know, here they are, they're hearing the word of God. Okay, there's been a number of times recently where they have spent hours standing and listening to the word. They've seen the word demonstrated in the feast and were reminded of what God had done in their midst and, and the fulfillment of the law. And now they're righteously responding to that word. And this is an expression, brothers and sisters, of their repentance, of, of recognizing their wanderings from God, how they had not been fulfilling God's word. And so although the word of God was close to them, they were far from obeying the word of God themselves. And so they confessed their sins and they expressed their commitment to obey God's word, which is a good reminder for us. It's his people that we are not just to come this morning and to hear the sermon and to walk away and say, wow, Pastor Rick, that was a great sermon or Pastor Rick, that was an awful sermon or whatever your assessment is. That's not the goal. It is to leave with a sense of a commitment to the word of God that we have heard, read and preached. The second thing, and by the way, the points just get longer as we go through the sermon. So unless you think we're going to be done by like, you know, 1140, I just want, didn't want to burst your bubble later. But anyway, now we want to look at the covenanting. What's the commitment that the people made? Well, uh, or maybe another way to ask it is, what was the substance of this covenant? And the chapter tells us that there were two things, verses 28 and 29. First there was 
it involved the separation from the people around them, and second of all, it involved the, the vow to follow God's precepts or God's law or God's statutes or his commands. So it's clear that this separation was both from something and to something. They were turning from something and turning to something. As we know, they were turning from their sin so that they might turn to God. Now, it's clear that the separation uh, was necessary. If you think about it, this would be true of any covenant that was made. We cannot enter one allegiance without leaving another. Uh, we cannot bind ourselves to someone without leaving behind others. And I know in, in the culture in which we live, that may sound odd because we're used to uh, duplicitous lives. We are used to having this allegiance and that allegiance. And they can even conflict with one another, but we're okay with that in the culture that we live. And so sometimes there's sort of an unspoken duplicity that can be there. But in a true covenant that you make, there has to be that sense of that allegiance. Uh, the Bible talks about repentance, and the Shorter Catechism sort of summarizes what the Bible teaches in these words. It says, repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's something that God does in the hearts of his people. It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and uh, apprehension of the mercies of God in Christ, in other words, having truly realized his sin, and grasp the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, what does he do? He, he does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. In other words, he turns to God with a full sense of resolve and an effort after new obedience. That's what repentance looked like. So there's that turning from sin, the hatred and the and despising our sin and, and turning to God uh, with full resolve and that effort for new obedience. And this is what Israel is doing. They have confessed what they have done in sinning against God, and now they're confessing what they will do in obedience to God. So this is true repentance. Of course, separation from the world would not be necessary if we weren't fallen sinners, right? Because we would already be living in relationship with God. We would be living in communion with God. However, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that we are all by nature walking according to the course of this world. Or at least we were before we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, the, uh, um, as we talk about the course of this world, we're talking about the rules and the regulations of this world, the, the expectations, uh, the, the standards, uh, the agendas of this world, and, and uh, which are in opposition to God. Like I said earlier, many people don't see the dichotomy between God's laws and the world's laws. And so for some, even for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, there's the possibility that the way that we're living our lives is to try to get the best of both worlds. Let me live according to God's law. I'll go this far, but I only can go this far because I also like what's in the world. And I want to preserve that as well. 
but the underlying foundations of this world systems are totally in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there can be no partnership between light and darkness and life and death and Christ and Satan. So, so we need the grace to separate from this world. We must understand, though, that our separateness is not to be just a mere external separateness. Sometimes Christians have misunderstood that. And so churches will, you know, on the outside seek to be separate from the world. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm not going to smoke or, or chew or date girls who do or whatever, you know. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, I'm going to try to appear holier than the people around me, and that's where we sort of get that term where Christians act holier than thou. Usually, that's just a sense in which we're only trying to be holy on the outside. <coughs> but if we have merely an outward separation from the world, accompanied unaccompanied by an inward heart separation, then we're still falling short, brothers and sisters. That's not what it means to follow God in His commandments. We're reminded of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And although they had physically been freed from Egypt and, uh, and were no longer in bondage and slaves in that sense, uh, most of them were still allied to the principles of Egypt in terms of their affections. This, this kept them in spiritual bondage and darkness. So they were, they were free externally but internally they were in bondage to the world in which they had left. We need God to take hold of us and separate our affections and our wills from their unholy alliance with sin and darkness, brothers and sisters. Then we will be free to live in holiness and righteousness as it is found in Jesus Christ alone. Only then will we begin to experience what it means to be separated unto the Lord. And let me just say this, brothers and sisters, like, like the Jewish leaders who were the first to stand up and to embrace the covenant, it's important that we not only uh, seek to, to have this sense of commitment to the Lord personally, but that fathers and mothers may must take the lead in their families, especially you men as fathers, in leading your family to live lives that are separate from the world. As families, we must aim at, uh, at holy and consistent lives of separation unto God dependent on His grace. As I said once again, it's that heart sense of separation, that sense of separation from sin. May God revive among us a sense of the need to live according to God's statutes and His commands. The third point, and this is where I'm going to spend the bulk of our time, because it's the biggest part of the, the section of this passage, is the actual covenant itself, the content of the covenant. And there's five things that the people promise. And really all of these, well, except maybe the firewood, all the other ones probably could be a sermon in and of themselves, okay? But we're not going to do that. We're just going to cover them briefly. First of all, marriage. Look at verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. They're promising not to intermarry. Now, we've talked about this a number of times through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
so I don't want to just go back over what we went over before, but I do want to remind you, this is not a racial issue. This is not a sense of we can't marry interracially as much as it is a religious one. That in ancient days, couples would come on their wedding day with their household idols, and on their wedding day, they would exchange their idols and put them side by side in their new home together. A, a sense of accepting that they worshipped each other's gods. And the problem is that's exactly what Israel was doing. They were marrying from the nations around them, and then they were adopting their gods and their religions, and sometimes being much more faithful to the new idol that they were worshiping than Yahweh himself. And so they intermarried with the people of the land, and in so doing, they intermarried with the religions of the land. You know, Paul talks about this in the New Testament. You know, he, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, he talks about not being unequally yoked. And he said, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And teenagers, I want you to listen to this. I hope you have your Bibles open. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, because we are God's people, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean, unclean thing, then I will welcome you. You see, young people, what the Lord is telling us is we're not to date unbelievers. We are not to marry unbelievers. And it's not that God is a cosmic killjoy and he's like, wow, she's a really good looking girl and I just don't want you to have her. Or wow, he's just like the most awesome man. He's so caring and he's so gentle. But no, I don't want you to have him. God knows that when a believer and an unbeliever marry, you have two gods that are serving in that household. And the temptation is for his child to forsake God and to follow the false uh, idols. So we are not to date unbelievers because as one who lives in fellowship with God, what do you have common with someone who lives in fellowship with Satan? Now they may not be <coughs> Satan worshipers, but nonetheless, if, you, if you're not in Christ, you are in Adam. You are fallen in your sins and blinded in your sins. So this wonderful, was a wonderful promise for Israel to make against the backdrop of how wrecked Israel was by their intermarriage. The second thing is the Sabbath, verse 31. Um, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Uh, you'll notice that as the people began to compromise with intermarriage, they compromised in other areas as well, including the Sabbath. And I know this text talks more about the Sabbath. It also talks about not extracting interest from fellow Jews. 
It also talks about letting the land rest as well. But uh, the main point here is the Sabbath. Um, and so Israel makes this promise that if foreigners come into their city on the Sabbath to sell things, they'll not buy them. It's not really complicated. Really all they were saying is we're, we will uh, keep the Sabbath day holy. And though they might be tempted by the wares because they were available as, as the people brought the grain to them, it was right there, uh, why would they not buy it? So, brothers and sisters, we are equally as tempted as well as the wares of the world are sold to us every day of the week. I, I don't uh, know if this is true today, but in years past, it used to be that the sales used to start on Sundays. You know, and if you really want to get the really, really good sales where there weren't, there was a limited supply, you would have to buy it on Sunday, or it would be gone. You see, for Israel, the temptation was to make Sunday like any other day. But we have to understand that the Lord gave His people the Sabbath not simply to show the world that God's people are holy and to stand out from the world, but He gave it to them as a gift. I mean, think about the Sabbath, especially as it relates to the redemption of God's people from Israel. I know the Sabbath was actually established at creation, but even if you think about it just from the point of, of the Ten Commandments and as God is, is telling his people how to live, one point of the Sabbath was to remind the Israelites that they were no longer slaves, that, that when they abandoned the Sabbath and when they committed themselves to work seven days a week, what they were doing is returning to their life of slavery. That God had given his people the Sabbath so that they were not slaves. So that they didn't work every day. Because when they were in Egypt, they had to work. When they were in exile, they had to work. But now they were free. And he said, so act as free men who I have set free. Now we believe the Sabbath translates into the New Testament Lord's Day. And so there's a sense in which we still benefit from the Sabbath today. And I think we ought to be asking ourselves, are we living like slaves when it comes to the Sabbath? Are you surrendering the freedom that God has given to you that has been built into the very fabric of your week in the Sabbath that you can be free from worldly things? That you might be free, that you might glorify and you might enjoy God that you might enjoy this day of rest, that you might enjoy the people of God, that you might be outside in His creation and, and enjoy that which He has made, and may it stir your hearts to praise and to give God thanks, that you might be free in the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. Or are you making yourself slaves? Are you still slaves on the Sabbath day to to the desires and the wishes of your heart? Are you still slaves to your worldly occupation that you think, I have to work today? Or slaves to the things that you have? You have all these things you have to look after, these materialistic things. And it's like, I don't have any other time to do this. i got to do it on the Lord's Day. If you're abandoning the Sabbath day, you're living like a slave. If so, let me encourage you not to do so. Stop it. Put your books down and study another day of the week or you can work another day of the week or you can go shopping. You can run errands on those days. 
And brothers and sisters, I'm not here to stand up here to try to lay out for you some legalistic standard by which to live. I'm just saying God has given us a day that we might enjoy him. And he says, I've just made everything's off bounds to give you total freedom. All through the week, you are struggling to spend time with me. And we know that. We wrestle to spend time in quiet times and, and worship and prayer. And the Lord says, but I'll give you one day that you can do that where you don't have to be distracted. You can do all the worldly stuff on the other days of the week, but you are, in, you are free to enjoy the Lord's day. It's not a burden. It's a gift. He goes on in verse 32, talks about the temple tax. On top of their tithes, they promised to give a portion of a shekel in order to support the temple. Um, you can see the different things in, in the text there that it would prove to support. There was a lot of things in terms of running the temple. And, and so the people said, we, we will promise to commit to do this. It was really what you see behind this text is a posture of generosity to support the Lord's work. It's a sense of saying what God is doing is important. And going along with that is the firewood. It, uh, they promised to bring firewood to the temple for the burnt offering in verse 34. And then you see uh, various offerings uh, in verses 35 through 39. And, and really these offerings talk more about the heart of the people or, or where the heart at least ought to be for the people. And the key word that we see used over and over and over in these verses is the word first. First. The first fruits of the trees. The first cattle. The first sons. The first dough and the wine and, and the oil. Um, and, and in essence, uh, what is happening is, is that God is providing everything for Israel like he provides for us today right and you know the thing that's beautiful and Matt brought this out earlier in the worship service he said you know God's not a minimalist when he provides he provides abundantly God didn't give us just the bare minimum to keep us alive he gave us good things he gave Israel sweet things he gave Israel good tasting things and what Israel is promising is when those trees are ripe with fruit, God, we're going to bring the first fruits to you. Or God, when you grant us children, uh, the firstborn son is dedicated to you. Or the cattle, the first is dedicated to you. Now, that may sound really sweet, but you think about it uh, being a culture that is uh, largely agrarian, and sons were important. Cattle were important. You needed them to operate the household, and maybe even the farm if you lived on a farm. And yet the people were saying, God, the first fruits are yours according to your word. What they were saying in essence in, in, in all these verses here in this section is that God, with all that we have, whether it's our family, our life, our money, with everything we have, we're going to put you first and we're going to give you the best. They were showing that sense of love, that sense of dedication to God. And it comes out in verse 39, at the very end of that verse, you read this sentence, we will not neglect the house of our God. 
You see, the, the, this last sentence sort of sums up the whole thing. The temple is important because that's where the people met with God. That is where they fellowship with God. That is where they had communion with God. Right? Much like we do on Sunday morning. When we come this morning, it is that we can commune with God. But we read in, in passages like Jeremiah chapter 7, how the people of God were sort of, you know, coming through, going through the motions. That they were living in their sin. They were worshiping these false gods. And then they would come on Sunday mornings, or, you know, Saturday morning, you know, to worship the Lord. And they would just sort of go through the motions. But there was no sense in which they were meeting with God. They were usually, they were probably using it more like a, a good luck charm. That's like, well, this is going to make God happy. So I'll be good for another week. And, and what the people are saying is, that's not our posture. We want to come. We want to support the ministry of the temple. That we might come and we might fellowship with God. You see, God's people committed. They made a covenant to obey and, and look at the commitment that they made, that they would, in verse 29, that they would walk in God's law, that they would observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His rules and His statutes. So the promise is to obey all of God's law and His commandments. Now, the promise in Nehemiah 10 has somewhat of a thorn attached to it, as I heard one person put it. If you look at verse 29, once again, at the beginning of that verse, it says, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, and so on and so forth. You see, they were not only making a promise, but a promise that if not kept, would result in a curse. Israel doesn't simply make a promise, but in doing so, what they're sort of doing is holding a knife to their own throats. And that sort of brings us back to Genesis 15 that we talked about last week, about how Abram cut the animals, right? And he split their bodies in two places. And God entered into a covenant with him. And then God walked through there. And basically, in essence, God said, man... If you do not keep this covenant, I will pay the price. I will be cut. I will take the curse upon myself. Sort of reminds us of the phrase that we use, something like cutting a deal, maybe. It's, it's sort of that kind of idea. So, so there is, in essence, one sense, there's a threat with this commitment, this covenant that the people were making with God. Now, how did they do? Well, we're pretty close to the end of Nehemiah, but if you just skim through the couple of chapters that we have left, what you're going to see is they didn't do so well. It wasn't very long before they had gone back and broken this covenant with the Lord. And not only that, but if you go and you look at other books of the Bible uh, in the Old Testament, you're going to see that God's people did the same thing. They were covenant breakers. And, and actually, if you, if you sort of look uh, at all of Scripture, you know, what do you learn, not just about Israel, but about the heart of mankind? You know, has anyone done what Israel promised to do in Nehemiah chapter 10? Has any of us 
kept all of God's promises that were given to Moses? Have we observed and done all the commandments that our God has given to us with the rules and the statutes? And the answer, of course, is no. Israel didn't keep these rules and covenants because Israel could not keep these rules and covenants. And it's the same way with us, brothers and sisters. And so in essence, Israel wrote a check that was too big for them to cash, right? Because it was actually a, a check that was written in their blood. The covenant has been cut, and now comes it comes with a curse because of the commandments that were not kept. And so God's judgment will come. And so what happens when Israel repeatedly breaks their promises? What happens when you repeatedly break your promises? God keeps his promises anyway. That's the good news, brothers and sisters. You may not keep your promises. I may not keep my promises. But God keeps his promises. Which is the good news because the Bible is full of people who make promises and they don't keep them. But we read in scripture, but God. But God. But God always keeps his promises. He kept his promises with Abraham. He kept his promises with Isaac. He kept his promises with Jacob or with Israel. And when we as mankind break our promises, God keeps his. You see, what Israel needs is not to stand before God and make more promises. What they need is someone who will come and keep the promises that they've already made. One who will keep all of God's commandments, all of God's rules, all of God's statutes. One who will endure the cutting on their behalf. And that's what Jesus Christ did, brothers and sisters. He was cut for us. We, we, don't, we don't have man making a promise to God, but really what we have in the Scriptures is God fulfilling His promise to man in the God-man, Jesus Christ. A promise, if not kept, would result in a curse. And who came and did not stand there with empty words, but came into this world to obey every single word that God commanded, every single rule, every single statute. There was not a jot or a tittle that Christ overlooked. But all was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And he never feared, veered from the past. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Christ never had to confess his sins. Christ never had to turn from sin and under righteousness like you and I have to do. He always did the will of His Father. Always. 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 Jesus did so to come and to bear our guilt even for broken promises. You know, even in those times when you have prayed to God, maybe for the thousandth time, maybe for the ten thousandth time, Lord, I'm serious this time. I really repent. God, I don't want to do that sin. And, and Lord, I turn, and I'm serious. And we say that right before we once again embrace that sin and turn our backs on God. 
the curse that rests upon our heads for our covenant unfaithfulness, Christ bore that curse and took it upon himself. And Jesus was cut. And he was cut. And he was cut until he was cut off from the land of the living. Because he was cut off, what does that mean for you and me? Well, what it means is, in the sight of God, even though you have broken your promises many times in the sight of God, you are viewed as if you had kept every promise. That's how God views you in Jesus Christ if you are His child. Now let that sink in. Think about that. Christian, not only does that mean that your sins are forgiven and you are declared righteous, but no matter what you do, God is going to keep His promises. All the promises that He has made, He will always be faithful. He will always be there. He will never leave nor forsake us. All that He has promised to do for His people, He will do. Now, why is that so important? Because we live in a world of broken promises. And many of us wear the scars, not only of our own broken promises, but of the broken promises of others. And you may be here today, and, and, and you may very much be feeling the effects of those broken promises. And I want you to know that there is one who can heal you. One who loves you. And he has never, and he will never lie to you. He will always keep his promises. He has kept all of his promises to this point and even sealed them with his blood. And that's what we need to remember in a world of broken promises that our God is trustworthy and He is the healer and He's the one who changes our hearts that we might be truthful in the things that we say as He is at work in us through His Spirit and through His Word. Now, sometimes we might question that trustworthiness because God's ways are not our ways, right? And the work that He is doing in our hearts is a, is a deeper work. It's a more glorious work than what we want. We just want God to make us a little bit better. We don't really want Him to make us like Jesus Christ. But He's committed to do so. And He loves us so much so that He will do that. So sometimes, maybe like a doctor who... Kids, you ever go to the doctor and they give you a shot? And you're like, Ow! I thought you were a nice doctor, right? Or maybe a doctor who would take you into the surgery room and <coughs> cut you open with a knife. That doesn't sound very loving, right? But in the same way, God has to cut us deeply so that we might experience His true healing in our lives. And He might be able to do a work that is soul-changing. And as we come to the table this morning, I want, us to, I want you to understand that we come to celebrate and to feast with Him who took our cutting. He's the one who took our curse upon Him. 
is the one who keeps his promises. He is the one who sealed his promises with his blood. And so we can come, brothers and sisters, with great confidence. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and meditate on God's word this morning. so much for what you have done for us as your people and Lord I pray that we might be a people who are committed to you people who who hear your word and we don't just listen we're not just hearers but we're doers as well that God we turn from our sin not just acknowledge our sin not even feel sorry about our sin but God truly repent turn away may it Make us want to throw up. May it, we hate it. May we want to be free from it, Lord. So may we turn from it to you. That we might walk in this newness of life that we have in you. Lord, to this new obedience. With a resolve, oh God. With a, with a desire, with a yearning, with, with our prayers that cry out to you, oh God, change me. Lord, cause me not just to obey you, but to love you, to desire you. Lord, may you change our hearts. But God, also for, for those that might be here this morning that are hearing this call to commitment and they have been at that place where they have made a commitment a gazillion times. And they think, oh, I, you know, what hope do I have that things are going to change? Lord, may they not return to the covenant of works as if they had to obey you in order to be accepted by you, in order to have fellowship with you. But Lord, may they come under the covenant of grace, knowing that you have purchased them. And it is because your promises are true. You will never lie that they can have the hope that there will be change in their lives. And so, Lord, wherever we're at, bring us to you. And especially, Lord, if there's any here today who do not know you as our Lord and Savior, may they know the joy of eternal life. We thank you, Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.